I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Claire Mutimer. And I'm Susie Coulson. Welcome to Backstory Mashups. Three shorter stories, some old, some new, but with a common theme running throughout. Mashups. Yes, it's a thing. And we're going with that. Yep. Hi, and welcome to another Backstory Mashup where this week we will be hearing stories on the theme of recovery. Yeah, we kick off with a story that I'm very relieved to say ended in recovery, but it could have been a very different matter. Ginny Moss talks to Claire about what it was like when her baby Alba contracted measles. Claire spoke to Gilly on the phone, so apologies if the sound isn't that great, but hopefully it's clear enough for you to hear, and you may even hear a little bit of Alba in the background. So tell me about your baby girl, Alba. What were your thoughts on vaccinations? We didn't really have much of an opinion on it. We just, we'd been vaccinated as kids, and so every time Alba was due for a vaccination, she was booked in at the GP surgery, and she was taken along, and there was never really a second thought about it until this happened. And then it's really made us um, sort of sit up and think just how important they are. I mean, we knew they were important, but... We never imagined that something like this would happen before the vaccination. You just don't, you just never think it's going to happen to you. No, I can imagine. And so what were the first signs that Alba was ill? So she had a really high temperature and she was rushing to hospital in an ambulance with this high temperature because she was floppy and unresponsive. Um, And she was diagnosed with what they thought was um, tonsillitis. And then... um, she was sort of sent home with throat spray and how to sort of advice on how to keep her cool and how to look after her. And then she kind of, she had a week of being poorly with what we thought was tonsillitis, had maybe a day or two where the temperature had gone, and then she started with the rash. So we were obviously back to the doctors because she was out of sorts again, and we were concerned about the rash because with the babies obviously they get rashes a lot but you just want to make sure that it's nothing sinister so the doctor thought it was just a like a viral rash from the tonsillitis and not to be too concerned about that the rash got significantly worse and her eyes started to swell up and it was her eyes that 
for me, was the most concerning part. Rolling and really sort of hanging. I had sent a, a photograph to my mum and sort of said, you know, I'm really concerned. The doctor said she's fine, but I don't think she is. And she had shown my my granny, so Albert's great-grandma, Gigi, and she's 94 now, and she <laughs> she's obviously seen a lot of, you know, like the old-school diseases like the mumps and rubella and measles, and she uh-huh. said that's measles, well, just by looking at her eyes. She's like, um, 100% that's measles. We went back to the doctors because she just seemed to be getting worse, and I said, look, um, I'm not a medic at all. No idea what's happening. First baby might just be overreacting, but... Um, three independent people, so my mum, Alba's nanny, and the, my, my grandma all said to think it's measles. Really concerned because obviously she hasn't been vaccinated. She's very small. She doesn't have immunity to it. What do we do? And at that point, she didn't have the spots in her mouth, so the GP didn't think that it was measles. So I was told to go home. Baby's fine. Go home. Give me a ring on Monday and let me know how she is. Oh. That night she ended up back in A&E and she was diagnosed with measles. They, they, did, they did make a clinical decision to send her home because obviously it's very contagious and if they were to admit her then other children would be at risk. Right, yeah. So, and we, obviously we understood that. So we came home and she just deteriorated so rapidly overnight. My husband stayed up with her all night so we ended up back in back in A&E in the morning. And obviously, at that point, we knew they had diagnosed her with measles. So we actually called ahead and said, look, we're coming back in, but um, we know that it is measles and we know that she's highly contagious. Um, yeah. And I just want you all to be prepared because we can't we can't look after her at home. She's too poorly. So they were brilliant, obviously, like kept her in isolation and stuff. And she was admitted and given really good care. She actually needed to be... She was trapped for secondary infections as well with antibiotics. She was tube-fed because she wasn't able to, to drink or eat. Oh. And so we had a couple of really, really scary days in in hospital, not knowing just exactly what was going on. Oh, Jilly, it must have been horrific. It was just... I thought that that night that she was rushed into hospital with a high temperature was the worst day of my life, but actually this in in hospital was just horrendous. Those couple of days where the doctors didn't know um, and we didn't know, nobody knew that it was just horrendous because they were thinking maybe it was Kawasaki disease, maybe Mm. it was something else, maybe it was measles and something else. Uh, There was lots of um, ifs and buts and it just, it was awful. But she just was deteriorating so much that we just didn't know. We didn't know if she would make it. It was just horrendous. Horrific. And is this quite uncommon for a baby to be quite so ill with measles? Or, like, was it, is that quite normal? I don't know. I think it's quite uncommon in this country because obviously we have the vaccination widely available. But it's obviously coming back around and there's been a lot more in the paper about it. when Alba was actually diagnosed and none of the doctors had really seen it. Yeah. And this is what was this is what was so scary because they hadn't seen it so they thought it was but they weren't really sure. Yeah. Um and we, we didn't know. Do you know where she caught it from? Was there was it you know, was it somewhere that you do you know anybody else who'd had it or we don't know anybody else who's had it and that's what's 
scares me even more because I can't, I couldn't pinpoint, oh, well, we were at a play group or we were in that cafe and I saw that happen or children or adults or whoever has measles um, are contagious before they actually show symptoms of sparks or temperature. Uh, yeah. So you could have it, but you don't know you've got it. And then if you're in contact with people, then you can spread it. You just have to be in close proximity for 20 minutes not right. even touch somebody because it's airborne. So if we were on, for instance, a bus with other people and somebody has it, then she could have caught it that way. Wow, right. It's really, it's so, so easily spread. It's scary how fast it spreads. When did you know that she was getting better? Um, so we had a really bad couple of days where um, we didn't think she was going to pull through. And then they trust her with um, a wide range antibiotic after she was given that. She started to show signs of improvement, yeah. Wow. How long did it take for her to get better? So really, she's still recovering now. The, the, the consultants have said it can take 12 weeks after, after they recover to actually be back. Back to normal again, right? Um, because their bodies are so little and their immune systems need time to grow uh, to build back up as, as well. Um, so she really is a good month. And do you feel like she's getting back to strength now? Is she back to herself? Or yeah, I do. I mean, we've seen massive, massive improvement in her. Um, even just day by day, I think babies are so resilient. They just, you know, once they start feeling better, they don't, they don't milk it. You know, they just get no. on with it. Don't oh. they're, they're amazing. But you could still see in her eyes that she still wasn't quite right. Right. And skin as well. Her skin's taken a long time to recover. And how do you feel about the fact that she had measles because other people hadn't vaccinated their children? Did have you felt some kind of, you know, any kind of emotion about that? any kind of emotion other than just the focus on her because it was all about getting Alba better and really focusing on her. I think one of the re- the biggest reason why I posted the photographs of Alba on my Facebook page, because I'm quite private, I don't really post much on there, um, I decided to do that because it, I thought it was really important that people understood just how sick vulnerable people and children can can get from measles because we when they told me it was measles I actually relaxed I was like oh thank goodness it's you know she's okay it's just a rash and the temperature but it, it's actually it it can kill you oh Claire what a story that was yes and it was unavoidable for them as Alba was too young to have the immunisation being under one, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, it really makes you think about the importance of herd immunity, doesn't it? You know, we're reliant on other people to have their children vaccinated to make sure that the disease doesn't take hold of the population again. Definitely. Yeah, it was interesting how it was her grandma who recognised the symptoms because I guess, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, measles were quite common. So just that sense of things actually going backwards a little bit yeah definitely and I think the first immunization was kind of licensed in 1963 and then I read that uh, um, an improved vaccine came out in 1968 so 
it wasn't really until the 70s that kids were vaccinated against it. And what it. about MMR, do you know? That came out in 1988. So, okay. um, yeah, I guess that was even too late for me to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when my first child was born, that was around the time that the whole furore was was happening. And right. I remember really agonising about the decision as to whether to immunise Yeah, it must have been hard at that time. Yeah. But obviously, it's completely safe. Yep, completely. Yeah, according to UNICEF, there's like a sort of inadequate level of vaccination rates globally. And that's kind of been put down to sort of complacency, misinformation and the scepticism um, about immunisations, as well as a lack of access in some countries. Yeah, because you need a certain percentage, don't you, to get the herd immunity. You do, so we've dropped. Yeah. Um, and we're sort of in danger of dropping below that, I yeah. guess. Yeah, it was surprising, actually, in the high-income countries, um, the US topped the list, and they've got two and a half million babies missing the first dose of the vaccine. Wow. And then France is next at 600,000, and the UK came in third with half a million oh, children okay. not yeah, having cause... their first dose of the vaccine. Wow, um, that's interesting. So this is why babies like Alba are ending up with measles. And it's the very young who are suffering, along with those, I suppose, with compromised immune systems. Yeah. And your daughter had her vaccine recently, didn't she? Yeah, my little girl had it recently. She had her second dose of one, just her sort of preschool ones. And yeah, it's, it was, you know, it's a, it's a few moments of pain, but... Um, I think she was a bit surprised. Yes, yeah. you know, she was not expecting to kind of go in there and then just for me to let her be whacked in the side yeah, by this like yeah. sharp thing. Oh. Um, but yeah, she got over it with a lolly. So okay. we're all right. So our next story is from Dave, who's recovered from anorexia, which is no mean feat. Let's hear Dave's story. I remember very specifically one day like, after breakfast, like, I nipped upstairs to like weigh myself again. I remember my mum like, crying and screaming from the bottom of the stairs, like, you're anorexic. Ah. Uh, which was like, to be honest, like it, that didn't really fit the model for what I was experiencing. What I experienced was that I was, loved it and it was great. And like, actually, if mum was going to react like that, then that was her own stuff. It mm. wasn't mine. I was enjoying what I was doing. The buzz of it as well, when you were like restricting and you felt like you could restrict for long times, that was absolutely great. And standing on the scales and seeing the mm. the numbers drop was amazing. And also that it dealt in numbers as well. Looking at some of the behaviours, for example, weighing, like whenever I woke up, the first thing I'd do is I'd go to the toilet and hop on the scales because I want it to be as empty yeah. as possible. And then no matter whether the number was good or bad or even indifferent, I would then move the scales and get another reading and another reading. And I normally weigh myself like four or five times. And then I'd go downstairs and if I couldn't avoid it, if I was like really famished and whatever, I would have... Uh, you know, a, a low calorie breakfast, and I'm not going to tell people what that yeah, is. Yeah. I don't want to tip you. Yeah. You know? um, and then I weigh myself again, uh, and then I would kind of go about my business, and I weigh myself two, three times sort yeah. of during the day. I was popping home from school to weigh myself. I was okay. popping home at lunch. At what stage did I'm, I'm guessing here because you, you know, you sought help. At what stage did that balance start to tip? At what stage did you stop getting enough out of it to feel that? you wanted to change behaviours? I think for me that was a weird one because I remember it very specifically. It was the summer of 2008 and one of my mates called me and at that point in time I was 19 and he said it was over the summer holiday in university very good friend of mine and he said look there's this thing called uh, TEFL teaching which we're teaching yeah. in a foreign language. Um, we've got like I'm doing it there's one of the places available do you want to do it and I was like yeah cracking mm. great stuff so I went down there and I remember I arrived and we were living in this uh camp in the middle of Somerset 
and it was three and a half miles to the nearest shop and then it only sort of the only thing that the shop really stocked was toilet paper and a general sense of malaise <laughs> and i uh i remember coming and we had food morning noon and night there was nothing else on campus right there was no calories on any of the food and there were no healthy options it was just pizza pasta oh, chips God. and the food got to everyone and it was a common sticking point to hear people so it's like, oh yeah jerry's you know cooked this again but for me it kind of i i realized that something wasn't right when i started getting nightmares about the cookies when i started setting my alarm in the middle of the night to try and do exercise mm-hmm. when i couldn't actually talk to people because i was constantly trying to tot up the calories and then what happens with anorexia commonly that isn't talked about is when you restrict for a long time what can be typical is a binge comes along as well right and then when my binges came it was very public because we all ate together and i remember that summer very specifically although it was four weeks it just had this huge effect on me of like i i just remember thinking like wow this isn't normal this isn't okay and that was when i was 19 but it took me until i was 24 in order to feel comfortable enough to actually get help for it the only reason i got help i was i was very by the time i got to 24 i was very openly relapsing and for me i was very open that it was a slow suicide attempt and i'd started writing the letters i'd started like planning the films for like my niece when she got to her 16th and 18th birthday and i'd looked into how anorexia normally takes people of which i'm not going to go into that Mm. but i'd started to try and speed up that process um and the only reason i got help was i just stopped feeling anything and i stopped getting enjoyment out of anything I started pushing people away. I felt constantly uh, lonely. I couldn't hold on to thoughts. I didn't have any concentration, mm. any attention span. Mm. Um, and I remember specifically there was one week where I'd done this big piece for the BBC. And I remember everything in my career just seemed great. And I just remember feeling absolutely nothing. And I went to the GP the next day and I said that I'm not feeling anything and they put me on to antidepressants and referred me down the channels and I was very staunch that I wanted to be treated for depression not anorexia and I refused treatment for the anorexia four times and it was only when someone at Lambeth Talking Therapies got very hard line with me and she said look we can treat the depression without the anorexia but it's going to do sod all Mm. If you don't uh, charge your laptop, you wouldn't expect it to work. It's exactly the same with your brain. So you've got a choice. You can either put up with this or you can make a change. And that was the only time that I'd actually thought, oh, maybe there is another option. And actually, that was the first time in a strange way. And I don't know if other people feel like this, but I was like, wow, I'm not going to die and as, as ungrateful and horrible as it sounds that was an overwhelmingly scary feeling that was an overwhelmingly 
all those i don't want to use the word depressing but sad feeling in itself because you'd been heading down that path you thought that that was where you were going to go and suddenly you've got to choose something else and you've got a whole stretch of something in front of you so what helped what helped when you decided that you were um you were kind of to coin a phrase choosing life I yeah, never had it like that before. I, I think firstly, choosing, right? Like firstly, no one made me do it. So okay. it's my own choice. Yeah. Great. Secondly, as well, it was positively spun because I really ate it when people say, oh, okay, we're going to get rid of the anorexia. Because the way that I heard that is the same way that an alcoholic would say, right, we're going to get we're rid of the booze. taking something off you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think what really helped me is to realise that you stand to gain stuff rather than focusing around what you lose. You start to get stuff back in your life. Big time. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow, so fascinating what made Dave become an anorexic and now such an effective campaigner. If you want to hear more of Dave's story, then check out season four, episode two, Recovering from Anorexia. Yeah, it's hard to give something up, I guess, when you feel that you're getting something positive from it. So I think if recovery is going to happen, you've got to feel as though you stand to gain more than you lose. Yeah, it's an equation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think recovery feels very much like a process, not a single event. And also something that needs constant work. You know, people talk about how they're recovering rather than recovered. Yeah, which is very true for anorexia in particular, I think, isn't it? Something that's sometimes a lifelong Yeah, and it's how thing. people talk about recovery from drugs and alcohol as well, isn't it? As that yeah. sort of ongoing process. And also it was interesting with Dave that his recovery was prompted by someone saying just the right thing at the right time, which made sense to him. So there's always that element of luck there as well, isn't there? Dave, yeah, Dave had begun to plan for his own death. Yeah. Um He'd prepared letters yeah. and then had to face up to the prospect of living again. And this is a similar um, element to our last story about Tiff, who had the most amazing recovery from Hodgkin's lymphoma. Tiff found out that she was ill a few months after her daughter Maisie was born and she battled the illness for more than three years. 
When the awful news was broken to her that, she, that they thought that the cancer was terminal following failed stem cell therapy, Tiff decided to do a very strict diet, take cannabis oil and only eat within a very small window of the day. This entire story is told in Season 3, Episode 4, Learning to Live Again. But listen up for when she heard the big news. My consultant came in and told me the news and then... And I'd only had the scan that day, the CT scan. And um, she came in and said, yeah, you're in remission. There's no cancer. And I'm like, what? And I just immediately went, it's the cannabis oil and my nutrition and my machine. And she sort of looked at me and she was like, no, I don't think it is. And I was like, well, you're obviously not going to say it is, are you? So, and then I rang Tom and I was like, Tom, are you with mum? And he's like, yes. And I was like, put me on loudspeaker. So that I think they're going to Wagamama's or something. So they were in Leicester and I was like, it's all gone. It had all gone. So mum and Tom, I think mum obviously would burst out crying. Then I was like, Tom's like, who do you want me to tell? And I said, like, I'm, I'm telling everybody. I'm telling everybody. So then I rang my dad. I think, bless him, I think he dropped the phone. I'm not really too sure what happened. Um, and so I was like, I'll speak to you later, dad. So I said goodbye to him. Then I rang my brother and sister. And then I told Tom's parents, they were over the moon. So yeah, it was just, it was a whirlwind really. And like, even to this day, I can't, I can't really remember it. It was just like, is this real? And I can remember feeling really nervous when I got the result. And I was like, oh my goodness, everybody's going to think I've made a massive lie. And Tom was like, do you really think that? And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, what? So you just lost your hair for no reason in your eyebrows and eyelashes. And I was like, I know, but everything I was thinking was, I was just, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. So I was like, people are going to, you know, Tom's like, nobody's going to think you're, you haven't told the truth for the last four years. They've seen you feeling and looking how you have sometimes. Um, but yeah, it was just, and even to, like, even now I'm just like, Mm, is it real? But even like, sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, my little toe hurts. I'm like, my goodness, it's back. It's in my toe now. What's happening? And it's just weird. Everything you think of, like even if I just bruise myself, I'm like, oh no, it's in my arm or in my wherever. But it isn't. It's That is a very, very normal thing with cancerous patients, apparently. When do you think you're going to start believing it or do you think you already do? I do and I don't sometimes. Like, it's weird because I said, Tom was like, you've got to believe yourself more, you know. And I'm like, I do believe myself, but there's always that slight doubt. Just because I've had such a roller coaster since having Maisie. Um, it's, yeah, it's been really, really tough. But it's, you know, it's made me think very differently on life. Like everything I do now, I'm like, oh, I'm lucky that I can do this. I'm lucky that I can do whatever just because of how I'm feeling. But yeah, I do believe it, but I don't believe it. When you told Maisie that you weren't dying anymore, like, what did? how did you tell her? So what I did is my mum was there with Maisie, and I was like, Maisie, you know mummy hasn't been very well? She was like, yes, and she went, you're still not well, mummy, you're in hospital. And I was like, right, okay, this one's going well. And it's probably, thinking back, it's probably not the best thing to have told her in hospital, but I was just so excited, and I just had to get out. And I was like, you know mummy lost her hair and wasn't very well? Mummy's all better now, so mummy's not going to heaven anymore. And she just cuddled me and gave me a kiss. And it was so sweet. And she was, oh, you just suddenly saw a different person in her. Like she was like, and then, you know, just a spring in her step. And she's like, mummy's not going. And when she went to school the next day and told them all, and like she rang up granny, my mother and father-in-law and told them, she's like, my mummy's not going to heaven anymore. She was just so excited. And just to see her with her, telling her friends, like as much as people go, children don't understand. 
they really, really do understand. How have your and Tom's like perspectives changed? Do you think it's changed as to how you, you live your life now that you've kind of been what you've been through and, and with this new lease of life? Yeah, oh, definitely. Like, I know when Tom obviously found out the news, he went into the club and like the coaches were like, oh my goodness, we've just seen a change in Tom. Um, just not not from his worth ethic and everything else, but just his general smile. And he wasn't, you know, it was just amazing. But yeah, my now I'm like, well, you know, I haven't had this for four years or we haven't done this or whatever. Can we do this? And he was, so he doesn't get away with a lot now because I'm like, oh, but we've missed out. So we just literally do as much as we can. And, you know, our life has changed dramatically yet again. I just do whatever, you know, we just spend as much time as possible together um, as a family and just do anything for Maisie, really. Oh, Claire, that still warms my cockles. Do you know how Tiff's doing now? Yeah, I saw her at Easter a year on and she seems very well. Um, She's back exercising and looks fantastic. Fantastic. Do you think that there are any kind of analogies that we can draw between these stories? Well, the one thing that really struck me was that all three of our contributors are doing their utmost to raise awareness, um, giving their time to notify others of their recovery. Or in the case of Alba in particular, it's about notifying others of prevention through the vaccination. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, So Susie, tell me, what have you been listening to? Okay, quite a lot, actually. I've been listening to Emily Evis on Desert Island Discs, who is the organiser of Glastonbury. And I know you listened to this one as well. I did. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was fascinating, you know, just hearing about what it was like growing up with the festival ever present. I think she talked about going on the pyramid stage and playing her violin, which sounded completely brilliant. And then she talked about how she experienced the death of her mother when she was 19. And that happened shortly before one of the festivals. And, you know, the festival went ahead and they kind of got through it. it And yeah. Unsurprisingly, she was quite good at choosing music as well, wasn't she? she? Yeah, she she had a wide choice. (laughs) She had a story for every song. She did. Yeah. Yeah. She was ultimately cool really wasn't she she was amazing and I've also been listening to John Ronson's podcast The Last Days of August which is an audible original so I don't know whether it's going to be available they do at some point don't they to be honest I've started this and I'm not quite sure where it's going it's kind of drawing on those strands the porn strands which was in the butterfly effect and the shaming strands, which comes from one of his books on being publicly shamed. So it's kind of early days and it's a bit of a mystery at the moment. To and you, yeah. To me, <laughs> to me, a bit of a mystery to me, but it's, but it's really, got John Ronson in it, so she's listening. Yeah, no, she it's just true. Loves John I, do, I really like the way that he presents things and the way that he writes and it's beautifully put together. I just can't tell where it's going yeah well all will be revealed and that's kind of part of the joy of listening to these things for me just seeing kind of where it goes yeah definitely so that's the last in this mashup series for now we are still working on our longer series which is hopefully going to be fab um we plan to bring you some more backstories over the summer so do keep subscribed there are loads of free ways to support us please rate review and write nice things about us on facebook because that really helps yeah, and it gives us the little boost that we need. Exactly, keep on bringing you this. Okay, well, thank you and bye. Bye-bye. We are The Backstory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at The Backstory Pod on Twitter. 
Search for The Backstory with Claire and Susie in your podcast directory. For sponsorship opportunities, or if you'd like to take part in a show, please contact hello at thebackstorypodcast.co.uk. The Backstory Podcast is produced by Tin Shed Productions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.